Hello, this is Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. This week, we have a special episode focused on cardio-oncology. As many Australian listeners will know, this was the focus of the recent COSA ASM, so it's a very timely episode. The team discussed some fascinating papers, and Eva chats with Steve Nichols, who leads the new Victorian Heart Hospital, the only standalone heart hospital in Australia. Craig gives us some snappy quick bites, and we also hear from our long-lost friend, Hans Prennan, with a COVID update from Belgium. In all seriousness, thank you, Hans, for making the time for us during this challenging situation. We hope you enjoyed today's entertaining and informative episode. As ever, links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, please subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter for free on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. It's Eva Segalov and Craig Underhill here for the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Craig, I think we used to have a third member, didn't we? Has anyone seen him recently, Eva? Hands. I last saw him getting on a plane back to Belgium. Haven't heard much since. And I noticed there's only uh, four listeners now in Belgium. Well, there's a lot of holidays in Belgium, I think. Yeah, they're one for the north, the south. Anyway, look, maybe he'll ring in. Who knows? Last time we had a phone call, I think it was Merv. That got us about 12 listeners in New Zealand. So thanks, Merv. And even Vogel New York, he had one friend who liked it on Twitter. It was Dr. Steve Martin, though. Who? His friends, Steve Martin. Oh, the comedian. Well, it actually looks like him. It's very funny because I got all excited. I went, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Steve Martin just <laughs> tweeted us. But it was actually, that's just his handle. So, And he looks like him on his picture. So have a look on our Twitter account for that. It's quite funny, actually. He was very not keen to get Steve Vogel onto Twitter because he has to sit through his opinions every week in the MDT. So it was quite funny. So does that mean I should put Bette Midler on my handle? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, who should I put? Ah, that's a good question. Let's think about that. Hang on, hang on. Someone else is coming on the podcast. Hi, Eva. Hello? This is Hans calling in. Is that you, Merv? No, no, no. Hans from Belgium. Vogel, New York? I think something is wrong with the telephone connection here. This is your third colleague calling in. Uh, we've talked about the third colleague before, I think. Hans, is it really you? What have you been doing? You will not believe it, but I was actually working, trying to take care of the patients during the COVID crisis. I assume you don't want to hear anything about COVID. Mm. No, well, we, we do, actually, because yeah, now it's not us in lockdown. So we're happy to listen to it. So that's ironic. You had to do some work, Hans, but not in cancer. It was in COVID. I had to see cancer patients, but let me explain a bit what happened the last two months. Because during summer here in Belgium, which was July, August, everything went well. In September, we have so little cases that everybody was saying, okay, yeah, what you do, your measures are way too strict and this and that. So you had the non-believers and the believers of the COVID crisis and everything got a bit loose. And you know, in the beginning, you have a few cases, but 
it goes really exponential. So it was on two weeks from a few cases to thousands of cases. And then people still say, yeah, but the numbers in hospitalizations, they stay low. The number of deaths, they are low. But the problem is, again, this comes a couple of weeks after. So at the moment you see the rise of the hospitalizations, you're too late. And this is what happened now because we had to really do a very, very strict lockdown suddenly because it was really exploding with full hospitals all around the country. We even have to transfer patients to Germany because we had no spaces anymore in Belgium. And then there was a very strict lockdown. And now things are stabilizing, still full hospitals. But, you know, winter is coming soon here. And this is not Game of Thrones, but still the winter is coming And that's why we're a bit afraid because we cannot take care anymore of the regular care. And so we try for cancer patients to still see them, to still treat them. But for example, I had a few patients that I really wanted to hospitalize last week, but there was no place in the hospital, so I couldn't hospitalize them. So I had to let them go home and I call them every day to ask how you're doing, etc. So I think this is the worst now. And the question is for how long do we have to do this? So when can we become a bit less strict? No, it's very sobering to hear, Hans, and I'm particularly concerned that you had to do so much work. No, on a serious note, what about the junior medical staff and nurses and colleagues? Did you run out of workforce as well? At a certain moment, we had, let's say, 20% less personnel, so we were a bit afraid that this would even increase. But then this stabilized and actually because yeah, the nurses are very motivated, also junior members very motivated. But I'm not sure for how long they will still do this because the government promises us more support, financial, but also people-wise. They do it because they love taking care of patients, but I'm a bit worried about the psychological consequences now because everybody's getting really, really tired. There was a paper earlier this year by Sigalov and all from Melbourne about how to manage cancer patients in COVID. I hope you found that paper of use, Hans. This is an amazing paper. And actually, I was lucky to be part even of that paper. So I read it once in a while to see, okay, what did we say about how to support our patients during COVID? And I must say it it helps. Okay, something we do automatically, giving more oral treatment, seeing patients less at consultation. But I still think it's helpful. So I advise everybody to have a look at it when you have the time. Hmm, Let's put up a link that people can click on. So this is our cardio-oncology edition. And the reason we've done a special edition was to coincide with the theme of COSA that was virtual last week. Well done, Brian Chan and colleagues. Fantastic meeting. Although COSA really is one of those meetings where you stick around and have a chat and do a lot of networking. So that was hard on Zoom. What did you think of the meeting, Craig? Oh, there was an amazing symposium on the Tuesday about teletrials. And there was this old guy called Underhill who gave a presentation about teletrials in Victoria. And then there was a panel discussion. It was good, but it went for eight hours. So eight hours on Zoom was like really hard. So there was, you know, a lot of people in the room and then people who couldn't fly into Queensland because of the border restrictions did it by Zoom. So I think that probably, you know, was 
too long. And so I think in planning conferences in the future, you know, there will be that hybrid model. And so I think, you know, it's going to be short, sharp sessions. And maybe like you say, you get to network, maybe there needs to be 10 minute session at the end where it's an open room and people can have a bit of a chat and discuss what they thought of the session or, you know, maybe needs to be some other innovations that we could think about how we run conferences going forward. Vogel highlighted it's more difficult to ask questions. And so that kind of issue probably needs to be addressed, I think. It's also a bit like doing this podcast. You don't know if anyone out there is listening at all to your talk. You get absolutely no feedback. I know. And it's really weird. Yeah. I was cracking dad jokes and you'd be waiting for the laughter. (laughs) Nothing. So it is really hard, actually. But it's a bit therapeutic for ourselves, no? We can speak with each other. No dad jokes on the podcast. Yeah. So, fantastic. We've got a great interview this week with the head of the new Victorian Heart Hospital, my very good friend, Professor Steve Nichols, and we'll be discussing a couple of cardio-oncology papers and the whole concept around what actually is cardio-oncology. So, straight to our interview. It's my great pleasure to have a special guest. It's not quite Vogel New York, not quite Merv from New Zealand, but our very own wonderful Professor Steve Nichols. Hi, Steve. Hi, Eva. Now, the oncologists out there listening are thinking, we don't know Steve Nichols. So who are you, Steve, and why are you on this podcast? I guess we'll work that out. So I am um, Professor of Cardiology at Monash University. I'm Director of Cardiology there, and we are currently building Australia's first and only dedicated heart hospital with a heart institute, which we're actually launching this week. And we're pretty committed to building a a really high-level cardio-oncology program from clinical service all the way through to research and teaching. So it's good to be working with you on that. So that's super exciting because cardio-oncology is an emerging field. But tell us, what is cardio-oncology and is it the same to everyone who uses that term? Well, it probably means something different to your listeners than it might be to my listeners. And I think what it means to my listeners has probably changed a lot in the last few years. So it would be fair to say that when I was a trainee, cardio-oncology was anthracyclines did something to the heart muscle and that was about it. And I think what in the cardiology world we've been kind of understanding in recent years is that there are the acute and chronic effects of a range of different therapeutics for cancer, both chemo and radiation therapy. But then there's also this kind of growing world of survivorship when the cancer patient kind of gets out the other side just to find out that they're now at a high risk of a heart attack and stroke. And so we're really kind of now seeing cardio-oncology to us being a whole subspecialty that we're sending fellows now off to learn to get that subspecialty training in. So it's not just a niche area, it's going to be commonplace? Well, I think it is. I think that any major unit is going to have to look to have collaboration between cardiac services and cancer services, all of its different forms. You know, I've got a lot of young fellows who are realising that I can't just keep accommodating all and all of them with cath lab jobs, so they have to find other things. And in recent years, I think we've seen 
a lot of people go into heart failure and imaging. And now we're starting to see where the interface between cardiology and a bunch of other diseases kind of forms, I think, really important specialty. So cancer is one space, diabetes would be another. And so I've spoken to three or four fellows in the last 12 months who have all raised an interest in, in that being a path they want to follow. Fantastic. You talk about collaboration and you and I are actually on a grant that's currently in for consideration at the Cardiac Society, but I was disappointed to find out that of the judging panel, there are zero oncologists and only cardiologists. So is this the cardiologist's definition of collaboration? (laughs) Well, I hope not, but it's small steps, isn't it? So, I mean, I think our National Heart Foundation this year uh, announced four separate special funding initiatives and one was in cardio-oncology. So I think that's a really positive thing, that there's a recognition that this is important and we should be doing work and we should be doing collaborative work. I think we probably need to do a little bit of work on how we assess it and think we could perhaps do some work behind the scenes to see if we can make sure that everybody's interests are recognised there, most importantly, the patients. But I I would hope and I suspect that the applications in that initiative do reflect this kind of broader range of what collaboration looks like. So it's not just imaging echo and MRI of breast cancer patients, but in fact, it's looking at all of those other things that we talked about earlier on, which, which in fact was one of the areas you and I were interested in looking at. So it brings in, of course, epidemiology and the opportunity for prevention, which oncologists and cardiologists both love. And you've done a lot of work with large prevention studies. We're both interested in aspirin and repurposing statins, beta blockers, other preventative medication. Is this where we should be focusing Well, I think it's a really important area. I think that, you know, outcomes for many cancer patients are on the improve. And the reality is whether it's due to some of the therapies they may have received or common risk factors, that cardiovascular risk is now something that's a reality that they're going to have to deal with. I'm a preventive cardiologist by trade, so this is a particular area of interest for me. And, you know, I think that this kind of common epidemiology is important the likelihood is there's a lot of common biology. And I think a finding that really shook our field, which really highlights the importance of the kind of overlap, was a large cardiology outcome trial reported about three or four years ago now of an interleukin-1 antagonist. And it reduced the subsequent cardiovascular events. But surprise, surprise to all the cardiologists in the room, perhaps not so much the oncologists in the room, there was also a significant reduction in new cancer, in particular lung cancer diagnoses. And I think that was a really good awakening for our field that there's a big overlap that we should be working together on. And we're going to discuss one paper in a moment that looks exactly at that. We are all excited about the immune system and host response and harnessing that for cancer. But it's pretty important for cardiac and cardiac damage, isn't it? It is. I think that we're increasingly understanding that certainly atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease. You know, the first cells to go into the artery wall are inflammatory cells. And yes, it's driven by cholesterol and blood pressure and diabetes and smoking and all those types of things. But inflammation is a pretty common pathway there that underlies the real damage there. And our field has not only appreciated that some of our therapies 
like statins and aspirin probably to work to some degree by being anti-inflammatory. But now there's a really big interest in developing specific inflammation-targeted drugs for cardiovascular disease. And the inflammasome is suddenly flavor of the month, for example, as I'm sure it probably is for you as well. No, absolutely. Now, before we go any further, I just need to take you up on something you mentioned. You've got listeners. So can you tell us how many people will download this podcast in the cardiology world? Are we talking hundreds of thousands? Well, we hope so. They might have to look back into the library. We've launched the Victorian Heart Institute this week, which is Monash University's university-wide heart institute. And so there will be a whole bunch of social media around that. So I'll make sure my team spread this widely. Okay. And the second question is, do you have more Twitter followers than Craig Underhill, who's my usual co-host on this program? Well, how many does Craig Underhill have? Well, not many, but don't tell him that. Oh, I think I've got about a 1,000. Way more. All right, good. So on that note, let's talk about a couple of interesting papers that really cover the scope of cardio-oncology. The first is a paper, and if Craig was here, what would he say, Rachel? Click on the link because all the papers are up on the Oncology News Australia website. But the first paper was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association as a special report, and it's called Cardiovascular Toxicity Related to Cancer Treatment, a Pragmatic Approach to the American and European Cardio-Oncology Guidelines. It's a very long and detailed paper that really goes through treatment by treatment, scenario by scenario, and compares what the American and the European guidelines say and what is a sensible sort of synthesis. So do you think this is a useful paper? I think they are because I think that we need more and more of our field to understand that they're going to come into contact with more patients with cancer, patients who have had been treated with a range of therapies. And so we're going to have to have some sort of working knowledge for, in at least broad strokes, what classes of drugs are, what radiation does, what we think these agents do directly to the heart and the blood vessels and what they might do for just standard risk factors. So, you know, cardio-oncology for me is just as important if a drug raises your blood pressure just as much as if it is kind of toxic to the myocardium. Because I think where we then ultimately lead, and I think where those guidelines really talk to, is setting the scene for what models of care look like, because then they then begin to advocate for what needs to be done in the space. You know, this concept of collaborative clinics, the concept of implementation trials to to see that how things work. You know, we had a number of your nursing colleagues join us for our scientific symposium the last two days, which was really great. And they got it. They want to roll their sleeves up and say nurse practitioners can be front and centre in terms of what that collaboration kind of looks like, which I think is a really cool thing to test. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it opens up the need for education for GPs, for a whole lot of people. We've got to educate people about the change in prognosis for patients with our new drugs, what those new drugs are. And also, you've brought up radiotherapy a number of times. And 
dare I mention it without having a radiation oncologist on this program and I'll wait for an angry email from someone to say they should have been invited. But even radiation oncology has changed in its toxicity being far more targeted and new techniques, stereotactic body and even proton beam will actually reduce toxicity so that when we talk about things like radiation, update in techniques needs to be understood. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, when we think of radiation from a heart perspective, we think of what it might do the pericardium, we think what it might do the coronary vasculature. And and obviously where radiation is going to be more concentrated directly over the heart, then that might have greater implications for coronary disease than if you've got more targeted radiation elsewhere. And so, again, I don't think we need to all be card-carrying experts in all of this, but I think we are going to have a greater appreciation for the nuances of how patients have been treated for other conditions before they come to us. And just as an aside, in my previous life as an oncologist at St Vincent's Hospital, in my previous professional life, I'm not trying to be sort of spiritual and and re- <laughs> talk about reincarnation. That, here, that's but, a different podcast, right? <laughs> that, that, yes, what we were in our previous lives. But we had the heart transplant team there and we saw a number of uh, patients with cardiac toxicity from oncology drugs. And some of it is predictable. I've got a medico-legal case I'm commenting on at the moment, and some is unpredictable. Mm. So this paper is a really good reference guide for individual scenarios. And I think these merging two different guidelines is important, isn't it? I think so. Look, and I think certainly for our listeners in Australia and Asia who have the advantage of kind of being able to look at both the North American and the European guidelines, certainly in the cardiology field, I think that we see that as an advantage because they often do have some differences and we do get to be able to pick the best of both in terms of our practice. So, Rachel, don't tell him that we don't have any listeners in Asia, but we've got one in New Zealand called Merv who sometimes rings in, So, but they probably don't have any therapies or tests available in New Zealand because they're pretty low intervention country, would you well, say? I'm sure, I'm sure Merv won't mind us all being part of Asia Pacific. Great. Okay. So look, the second paper really is a fascinating paper and I think got both you and I excited mm. when we read it. And this was published in Nature Medicine, was a letter from Catherine Moore's group, who you're familiar with. And the paper's entitled, Myocardial Infarction Accelerates Breast Cancer Via Innate Immune Reprogramming. So straight to the heart of what we were talking about. We have got that epidemiological evidence, as you referred to before, of cardiac interventions causing reduced incidence of cancer or reduced recurrence of cancer. And most people who know me know I'm associated with the ASCOLT trial, still trying to push the final 50 patients in the world are looking at secondary prevention with aspirin. But here there was a lovely study where the authors induced a myocardial infarct by ligating the left anterior descending coronary artery in a syngenaic mouse model of breast cancer three days after they'd implanted the mammary fat pad with the tumour. 
And they also did sham surgery. So they compared the mice who had the myocardial infarction induced and they looked at the tumour volume and weight at 20 days. Now, interestingly, there was no effect on cardiac function, but there was an effect on the kinetics of tumour growth. So it wasn't that the tumour wasn't growing because the heart wasn't functioning. It was purely the immune and the systemic immune and inflammatory response to the myocardial infarction. Was that surprising to you, Steve? Perhaps not to me, but I spent a lot of time reading about these types of things. But I think it is it is a really important observation that I think a lot of people in our field will find interesting. Catherine Moore's group is one of the world-leading vascular biology groups. That model of myocardial infarction is a sophisticated one. It's pretty hard to ligate a coronary artery of a mouse and to do it in a reproducible way. They do tend to have very big infarcts. So the presence of the tumour itself probably wouldn't have affected that per se. But I think that, you know, we know, putting even the cancer part of the story aside, that kind of immune activation plays a role as plaques form and evolve and they rupture. But then now here's some clearly some nice data to extend the observation of immune activation in the setting of tissue injury and that immune activation having adverse consequences elsewhere in the body, which which kind of makes sense. But I think it's a really kind of nice demonstration of that, and I think we'll open up a whole body of work in that space. And, of course, the detail increased circulating monocyte levels, recruitment of those to the tumour, looking at epigenetics and the changes there were really very important and lots of detail, a very elegant series of experiments looking at the changes in the mouse and then correlating it somewhat with the clinical findings of patients with breast cancer who did not have existing cardiovascular disease or even risk factors. They subsequent cardiac event increased both the risk of the cancer recurrence and the cancer-specific mortality. So that's the other way of what you've said. We not only need to look after cardiac disease and cancer survivors, we need to be aware that cardiac events can impact on cancer recurrence. And we know that there will be frequent flyers from a cardiology perspective who will have recurrent events. So there are patients who probably have even more immune activation. There will be patients who have suboptimal suppression of that immune activation with therapy. And we haven't really even begun to scratch the surface in trying to identify who they are. For us and for you, the role of the bone marrow is pretty important. And what we're discovering in all of these discovery models is that precursors from the bone marrow are playing a really important role and going to the blood vessel wall, they go to the myocardium. If we do PET scanning, in models of myocardial infarction, you see signals all over the place, including the brain. And I think it's a nice link with the clinical data that you just described. So you and I both know what a frequent flyer is, but in this COVID era, do you think there'll be a generation that grows up that just doesn't get that phrase? Maybe a frequent five-kilometre walker or someone? Well, I think that's an excellent thought. I look to the sky occasionally, longingly. I do have a flight booked for December somewhat optimistically. I may 
cry when I get to the lounge. But anyway, it'll be good to get in the air at some point in time. I hope it's to Geelong. I mean, actually, we're recording this now at 6pm. At 11pm tonight till 3am, I have our International Anal Cancer Inaugural Meeting, supposed to be in Aarhus. And instead of that, we get to stay up all night, still have to work the next day and convene a meeting over Zoom. So the world's changed, hasn't it? It has changed a big way, but might be a while before we can go overseas. Maybe we can go visit Merv in New Zealand. Yeah, let's go on a Merv tour. That's great. Okay, so the third paper we've got is an Australian paper from the Asia-Pacific Journal of Clinical Oncology entitled The Real-World Impact of Anti-HER2 Therapy-Related Cardiotoxicity in Patients with Advanced HER2-Positive Breast Cancer. The reason I like this is that I think sometimes we get too concerned about small risks and they blow out of all proportion. So obviously the initial anti-HER2 therapy trials didn't recognise that there was potential cardiotoxicity and so the rates were high and quite dramatic. We moved into an era of aggressively investigating women on anti-HER2 therapy to the point where if muggers were used or gated scans, patients were actually exposed to very high levels of radiation. On the other hand, we had the use of ECHO to monitor patients with its notorious unreliability in detecting ejection fraction. Do you want to comment on the latter? Well, I think ECHO is widespread. It's easy to do an echo. I can basically now do an echo for all intents and purposes on my iPhone and it can give us a lot of information. But there is a lot of variability in the standard measurement of the ejection fraction. It has led a number of groups to be really active in the space to look at measures of longitudinal strain, which it looks at more subtle changes in the function of the cardiac wall. And there's nice data now to show that those changes are more reproducible, that they are predictive of poor outcomes. And we're seeing studies that are being conducted um, in cancer patients. Tom Marwick at the Baker has a specific interest in this field, and he's interested in the ability to measure strain and triage patients with early changes to a range of cardioprotective therapies and then to see whether that will improve outcomes. And then I guess the other imaging modality that is of interest to us is MRI. And MRI now is something that we've been able to image the heart for a couple of decades. We've kind of kept on holding on to this one-stop shop line, although it's not quite delivered that. But in centres which have good cardiac MR services, that can be a reliable tool. But you know, if we can get strain done in a reproducible way, by sheer virtue of the fact that echo is a lot easier to do, that would be ideal. And it's a heck of a lot better than, as you said, doing old mugger scans. So this paper looked at 287 patients, 92% of which received anti-HER2 therapy. They were on a prospectively maintained registry database in Australia and they showed 6%, 17 patients experienced cardiac toxicity those who did were more likely to have at least two or more cardiac risk factors and particularly a prior diagnosis of cardiovascular disease. 
It resolved on imaging in 65% of patients and no association between severity and resolution. And 65% of the affected patients receive cardiologist input. So you've missed out on a few dollars there. That's not like the cardiologists we know. (laughs) Of the patients who develop cardiotoxicity, 12 patients, 70% still were able to receive further anti-HER2 therapy. So it is important data, but reassuring. And we need to balance monitoring with cost effectiveness. Yeah, look, I think there's a whole bunch of really good points that you've just talked about, some of which we reflect what we've been talking about this whole session, the idea of commonality of factors that might be driving disease and that we're not always dealing with people who are perfect biological specimens when they first come to our attention. Present company excluded. Of course. course. Second, you've got that kind of concept of how do we move doing all of these things from an ad hoc perspective to a systematic way? And I think the best way to do that is to embed these things into the right clinic. So we talk a lot, as you do, about If the patient is central to the whole deal here, why do we make the patient go to five different clinics? What we should do is take the five clinics to the patient. And I do think that not only from a medical perspective, but I do think that this is a great opportunity for the nurse practitioners to play a really important role in all that. So, And that's why I think you're starting to see these services pop up and you're starting to see implementation activities start to be evaluated. And we're looking forward to doing that type of work with you and your colleagues because we think that can make a big difference. So prevention can sometimes be a bit soul-destroying. I mean, the evidence is there, but changing human behaviour is difficult, although a cancer diagnosis is a real teachable moment. So I'm sure as is a cardiac event and particularly the changing demographic now of women having more cardiac events and younger women, Yeah, so look, I think certainly primary prevention is tough. We do that at a community level, and then we obviously do it in primary care and a bunch of other places at the more pointy end. But we know that we will be applying those efforts to a very large number of people, many of whom will probably never have a heart problem. Then you have your event, and if you're lucky to survive your event, remember, probably close to a quarter of people having a heart attack don't survive to hospital. And those numbers haven't changed in a long time, despite all the efforts that we try to do to try and get the community to call an ambulance pretty quickly. So by the time I come around on my ward round in the coronary care unit the next morning, you know, you're dealing with a survivor and they have to get over the immediate shock of what's happened usually in the last 24 hours. Suddenly they've gone from feeling like they're well to being feeling like they're very unwell. Often they've gone to a cath lab and somebody's put a stent in or something like that. But then the job starts from getting them through that and then preventing them from not coming back again. And so for us, prevention keeps kind of popping up at different phases of the kind of disease spectrum. And the final paper I wanted to discuss, Stephen, was some data out of WA looking at the fact that cancer survivors are actually prescribed less cardiac preventative medication purely because of the perception that they're cancer patients and so that's not terribly important. So there's a lot of change of perspective that we need to do in the general community and with general practice as well. 
Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, it starts with our colleagues. I mean, we need to understand that there's been a sea change in therapeutics in the oncology space. I mean, the handing Nobel Prize is at left, right and centre. And there's a reason for that because the therapeutics are making a fundamental difference to outcomes. And if they're going to make fundamental differences to outcomes, then cardiometabolic disease is going to become a really big issue. And so I think what you'll see is over the next few years that that kind of bias start to decline. And that's before you then get to patients and other healthcare professionals. So I think it begins with cardiology because I think they need to be leaders in not under-prescribing therapies that they think that will be useful for patients who now turn out to have a good life expectancy and should have those therapies administered to them. Well, Stephen, it's been really fascinating talking to you, very, very topical. And I think it's wonderful to see the Victorian Heart Hospital and Heart Institute really focus on cardio-oncology and take advantage of being co-located in both the community and all the healthcare settings, the two biggest killers of the population worldwide, at least in high and middle income countries, cardiac disease and cancer. And the thought that there is probably a common etiology or at least pathway for therapeutic intervention. Yeah, no, look, and I think the opportunities are endless and it's an exciting time to be working in this space. And if I was one of those younger oncologists or cardiologists who are interested in looking at that kind of hybrid specialty as part of the way they were going to spend their week, I think that's well worthwhile. And uh, thank you for letting me crash your oncology talk. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Do you want to announce funding for some cardiology oncology fellowships? between our departments. I don't have any money, but I'm enthusiastic. Well, if I find some money, maybe I can come back and we can talk again. (laughs) All right, Steve, it's been fantastic. Cheers. Over and out. Bye for now. And now for some cardiology quick bites. More snappy than mitral stenosis. Remember that? Did anyone ever hear an opening snap? Over to you, Craig. No, I certainly didn't ever. We used to call them guessing tubes when you had to put your stethoscope on a patient's chest and work out what the murmur was. So very briefly, as we know, you can click on the links for some more information. But Eva selected these five papers, which are all very interesting, starting from the slightly more serious First one's from Pooja Prasad, Cardiology, Oncology, Preventative Care, Racial and Ethnic Disparities. This is out of New York in the current cardiovascular risk reports, basically saying don't forget the populations with existing disparities. In particular, African-Americans experience higher rates of cardiotoxicity from chemotherapy than Caucasians, and they're underrepresented in research, so they need to be specifically thought about in research in this field. The second one from Dr. Anathan in the Journal of Cardiovascular Translational Research entitled The Role of Biomarkers in Cardio-Oncology. It's a review looking at some possible biomarkers that might be of use to prospectively look for patients at risk of cardiovascular toxicity. So that's a really, I think, important review, important piece of work. 
The third one from a cardio-oncology journal, Cardio-Oncology in China. We are on the go from Dr. Zhang, review of the development of cardio-oncology clinics and the whole field in China. And the fourth one, you'll absolutely love this, I'm sure, Hans and Eva and Rachel, from current treatment options in oncology, leveraging social media for cardio-oncology and the importance of utilizing social media networks to get the information out on this important new field to both the oncologists and the patients and general physicians. Does it mention how many Twitter followers Hans has? Because it wouldn't really give a lot of social media impact. No. Very good. Any more quick bites there? Yep. And lastly, perhaps the most important of the five quick bites from Dr. Daniel Lenahan, who is from the Cardio-Oncology Center of Excellence, Washington University in St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri. So this is a cardio-oncology care in the era of the coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19 pandemic, an international cardio-oncology society statement. So congratulations to all those authors. Thank you, Craig. So we come to the end of our COVID, cardio-oncology, welcome back, Hans episode. I think he's actually gone. Are you there, Hans? I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm listening. Ah, wonderful. Look, we wish you all the best. Seriously, stay safe and we hope that things do improve significantly in Europe and come back to Australia soon. I will. As soon as I can fly, I'm back. So seriously, Hans, do take care. We all have been through the stress this year, probably nothing like you're currently going through, but I think some of your lessons to everybody about once the cases surge in the hospital, it's a bit late. So we're all currently in a good position in Australia, but you know, remain a little bit nervous about what time ahead will bring. So take care. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Hans. Thanks, Rachel. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Baby. Baby shark. 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 You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.